0: Welcome to the Startup CPG podcast. Startup CPG is a launch pad and community for small brands. We host interactive events and serve as a resource for insights and expertise to build a brand that's better for people and better for the planet. Improving on something should be inherently innovative. Within the food and beverage space, what kind of innovation really fuels Better For You products? As a young company, What kind of support exists to help you stick to your vision and to your values long term?
1: I do think because this industry is based on eating, right, and drinking, and everyone has to do that, there is an actual opportunity here that a lot of other industries that pretend to care about sustainability say. But I think in food, we actually have the power to make change.
0: Chloe Servino has an impressive resume reporting at Forbes. She covers all things food and drink, from billionaires to under-30 entrepreneurs.
1: I'm looking for candidates constantly. It's not just that we're starting officially the reporting process. We get submissions from a lot of parents, honestly. Please don't do that. But um, I get it.
0: (laughs) Pro tip on this episode, Chloe shares nuggets of wisdom throughout the entire episode and the 30 Under 30 applications just launched. So make sure to listen through to the end to hear how you can really stand out as a young entrepreneur. I'm really excited to be chatting with you because as a journalist who covers all things food from billionaires in the food industry and understanding what's happening in the future of food with these massive companies down to evaluating the most brilliant entrepreneurs. Really exciting to have a conversation with you about what's going on in the CPG space. Where is all the activity happening? What should people be looking for to be emerging and coming out in the CPG space? And what are some innovative ways people can bring their ideas to life? I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much, Amanda. Yeah, thanks so much, Chloe. So let's just start out. Tell us a little bit what your job is like. What do you get to learn every day?
1: Well, yeah, every day is different. I've been at Forbes for six years. And this week, that means I've been wrapping up a story about a big private equity financier of fast food restaurants and have been elbow deep in finishing up valuations for our Forbes 400 issue, which is our big issue of the richest 400 Americans that comes out every year. And I've gotten to see from that everything from the Cargill and Tyson and other lesser known chicken processors to a billionaire who at one point invested in 11 Madison Park and the Nomad Hotels also owns Burger King franchises and i've been you know in the process of trying to find some new fortunes and i think we're going to have a few new ones that i'm actually particularly excited about really big fortunes that we have actually never gotten to pin down before
0: cool any of those new fortunes have cpg products
1: One of them is a very big contract manufacturer that actually does both meat and a lot of plant-based stuff.
0: Oh, wow. That's fascinating. We just did an, an episode on contract manufacturing.
1: I am obsessed with contract manufacturing. I think it's anyone in CPG knows it's actually what makes this industry sing. And it's the reason that this industry has so many competitors at times. And there can be spaces that are quickly flooded with a bunch of buzzy companies really quickly. Um, and it's also the reason that honestly, that our country was able to keep feeding people during the pandemic, because I believe there are around 30,000 food processors approved in, in this country. Um, and that, that just goes to show how decentralized the food system is compared to, you know, the meat system. And when everyone was talking about how the food supply chain might have been breaking, we could look to how much contract manufacturing there is in food. And at least that's what gave me, honestly, a bit of relief when we were in like the scary days of March and April here in New York.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Can you elaborate a little bit more about decentralized co-manufacturers?
1: The reason the CPG industry and, like Expo West is so big is the fact that We've actually gone through a few decades now where the big publicly traded companies like the Kraft Heinzes of the world have tried to limit their own assets for, to get you know, higher valuations on Wall Street. And that's been coupled with this kind of boom in contract manufacturing, which has been really helpful for entrepreneurs because it's what has lessened the barriers to entry so much and that's why we honestly have so many young people and so many stories of moms who are making things in their kitchens for their children and you know able to come together with the company so quickly contract manufacturing is the bread and butter of what keeps this industry running um and it's the reason why there is as much innovation honestly as there is and there, it's also the reason there's as much pressure for innovation as there is everyone's constantly turning out new products because there are so many of these often independent often family run contract manufacturers that you know maybe never did a big brand themselves but they're bumping out all the products for all the hydration, all the sports hydration, you know, contract manufacturers, all like the nutrition manufacturers, there's like a bunch of these. And, and the more you kind of dig into who suppliers really are and, and what brands are similar, you start realizing that a lot of it's because the contract manufacturer is similar. And even in the beauty world, which I cover a little bit in contract manufacturing is also really important. You know, there's obviously these like off the shelf recipes that people will talk about.
0: Tell us a little more about that, off-the-shelf recipes.
1: Contract manufacturing is set up to be really easy for an entrepreneur. You can go in and you can say, I want to make this product. And, you know, for example – I've been hearing a lot this week about like these sports nutrition or, you know, better for you sport electrolyte drinks without as much sugar, right? So I could go mm-hmm. to the main contract manufacturer for that. There's probably like four or five at least. they're probably a lot on the West Coast. Maybe there's like one on the East Coast. And I could go to them and say, you know, I've got this story, right? I'm Chloe and I used to be a field hockey player growing up and about chronic Lyme disease and woe is me and i want to find a product that can help people get better nutrition with less sugar right it's all about less sugar these days they will have a bunch of formulas that are easily available to you and now you'll sometimes hear the founders who you know talk about you know fine tuning these recipes over and over again or spending years on these formulations and while i do believe that is true in some cases the vast majority of them are trying to create a story because these contract manufacturers do a lot of the work themselves. And yes, there's a lot of work that an entrepreneur has to do to make sure things are on track, right? And that the contract manufacturer is is getting the right ingredients or going the extra mile. Um, but there are definitely layers to this. And particularly in the beverage industry, it's pretty easy to slap your name on a label.
0: Mm. Yeah. What's a positive thing about contract manufacturing? It really drives innovation. Mm. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Because there are so many contract manufacturers, and this industry has gotten customers used to having new products come out, you know, maybe once a reset or once a year. Contract manufacturing, and, and as contract manufacturers have specialized more, entrepreneurs can look to some of these contract manufacturers and say, here's a product that, you know, maybe someone has a point of reference for, but maybe that's the perfect line extension, right? You know, I'm looking for something else to bring a new consumer in or make my core consumer add something else to their cart. And with contract manufacturing, you can limit order sizes often. It gives you a little bit more opportunity to experiment with new lines, especially when you're starting out.
0: What's awesome about the future of food that's innovative?
1: The reason I think contract manufacturing is So important is because of that resilience that I talked about earlier. I mean, we have, again, 30,000 food processing regulated manufacturers in this country. That is a lot. And while it's not spread out evenly within every state, it is in every state. That gives me a lot of hope for where we can build in the future um, and, and how regional supply chains can be further supported, really.
0: Thanks. So co-manufacturing kind of opens the doors for innovation in products that are better for people and better for the planet. That's really cool.
1: Especially for better for you. I mean, that's like the new wave, right? And contract manufacturers see that and the more progressive ones are pushing those products, it would be them off the shelf or otherwise, but they have these solutions now and they're working themselves to come up with new solutions for their existing clients. They understand that innovation is what this industry is driven by you know as new things are coming out as new types of packaging as new types of preservatives as sugar alternatives are coming out they are letting their founders know and helping them see what could be out there for new new products it's definitely a two-way street in a lot of ways and in more ways than I think people realize because these contract manufacturers are really the ones who are coordinating the ingredient buying opt in from abroad um, in a lot of these situations
0: yeah they're the the core infrastructure
1: right and again we can talk about kylie all you want perfect example of that you know her makeup company is a contract manufacturer right it's like the the kind of perfect example
0: hmm yeah kylie jenner you mean
1: yeah yep i did work on it in some of my not free time <laughs> this summer
0: yeah, I don't, I'm not so sure if everyone in Startup CPG follows that person's TikTok, oh. you know.
1: It's a crazy business story. So um, anyone might be interested.
0: That That's true. I'm
1: appeal, more appeal than, trust me, I've never used a lip kit either, but
0: <laughs> broad appeal. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so... As someone who maps the innovation that's happening in food and agriculture, and then also the stuff that's been around forever, um, what are you seeing as trends that are going to stick now that we should be focusing our innovation power on?
1: Yeah. Before I answer this question, I want to go back to a kind of wild memory I have from IFT. It is the most wild trade show. I go to all the all the major food trade shows, the XOS and the fat, fancy foods of the world, but IFT is maybe the most interesting because it's the a lot of the chemical ingredient manufacturers and the like ingredient suppliers and the sugar alternative companies. Um, and I will never forget the kind of just awe I had when I was standing at the booth talking to a representative from the publicly traded ingredient company, one of the bigger flavoring companies based in Europe. And they were telling me in the next next five years that, you know, we're seeing gut health now, starting to see brain health from like the Brainiac kids and some of the baby food lines that were coming out. But they promised me that, no, no, in five years, we're going to be looking for eye health in our protein bars. Oh, wow. It's not that this ingredient actually, you know, saved your eyes from the blue lights that are killing our eyes, but you know they had done all this testing so that they could have that claim be made on an ingredient of like, again, whatever protein bar or cereal or sports drink even that they could add. So now, again, like we're talking about contract manufacturing, the contract manufacturer now has this potential ingredient, they can buy this ingredient, it's like, you know, in a catalog and, you know, they can come out and say, you know, if a founder is trying to find a trend, right? And they're saying, uh, Brainiac kids, they're all over the brain health thing. I I need something that's a little more unique, a little edgier than that. I wanna do eye health, right? So now what's eye health about? It's for blue lights. So all of our eyes are getting degraded by this technological, and even more so now, work from home environment where we're stuck to our computers, stuck to our phones, stuck to our tablets, and our eyes are being degraded. But how are we gonna solve it? Not by eating carrots, not by eating wholesome foods, It's by putting an ingredient in a protein bar that probably has like a 0.1% efficacy rate, but they can market it to say that it's good for if you're looking at the computer a lot. And that stuck with me because, you know, I I think about like late capitalism a lot, specifically in the food world, but I've never thought about like, honestly, a darker ingredient than that and like what that really meant for the future of food and beverage. Now, a year later, here we are. We're all like stuck to our computers completely, working from home, so much of us. And I'm now sitting at home like thinking of how I'm going to protect my eyes. So maybe
0: they were right. Wow. That's a lot to think about. And I intimately know the startup CPG community. We're big, but we're actually not that big. We have about 500 people in our Slack community. And a lot of people deeply care about making a difference in the world. Mm. And it's really important to share these kinds of things because when you really want to make a change and you learn about this thing, this ingredient, and you want to promote it, or how do people discover what actually makes a difference in CPG? How can someone make a a product that really does benefit people, I mean, I'm learning about so many companies, right? I interviewed mm-hmm. a company that's working directly with smallholder farmers, another company that's rescuing the byproducts of tofu, mm-hmm. and so how can we make sure there's more of that and less of the snake oil stuff
1: I, yeah, snake oil is such a good word for it um and i think I think that that's exactly why I love working on the 30 under 30 so much because the ingredients with like the tiny amount of efficacy, there will always be big ingredient companies that are coming out with all these new ingredients. And by the way, that ingredient was just one of four that they were touting for their launches for this show, right? So I think that just like goes to show, you know, it's like everyone's like thinks about Expo West and what they're launching at Expo West. As the be all end all. Like, that's the same thing with this company was doing with their eye health product, which is one of four. You know, I think big companies like that are always going to have to keep churning. Unfortunately, we're in a capitalist system and that's not changing anytime soon. We as consumers can demand things, but that's not your question. Working a 30 under 30 and, and getting to talk to folks like Dan Kurzrock from Regrained and mm-hmm. getting to honestly have us take a bet on him when sales were tiny and it wasn't as proven of a concept even Um, this was a bunch of years ago
0: yeah upcycling what's that who would eat that
1: they're not the upcycle foods association and just like really trying to build this whole category out that's who I get excited about and like that's the those are the folks that when I hear about their entrepreneurial journeys no matter how small they were those are the ones when we sit down for judging for the under 30 list that I'm fighting for because I do think because this industry is based on eating, right, and drinking, and everyone has to do that. There is an actual opportunity here that a lot of other industries that pretend to care about sustainability say, but I think in food, we actually have the power to make change. So I think it's hard, but I think providing a community like you guys do is one really good way to do it. I think more of these founders have talked to, talk to each other, and I think more of these founders have to push these like bigger manufacturers and these contract manufacturers to make change. I mean, I think one of the most disappointing things for me this year, aside from just the tragedy, obviously, that we're all facing around us every single day, is that what I was most excited for about going to Expo West this year was seeing compostable packaging and how PFAS free packaging was coming along. Um, I know it had been top of mind for a lot of founders. And I know a lot of investors I had been speaking with that was their main thing that they were looking for. Everyone was really looking for solutions. And the plastic conversation had gotten to this point. And I think it took so long to get to that point that I was really excited about the momentum that I thought was going into Expo. And then obviously to have everything happen and Mm. having so many companies just struggling to survive and you know barely being able to think about compostable packaging, that's the kind of bigger shame to me. But I think there are founders and, and the way to... Even get these small founders who are a bit, bit more David and Goliath. If there are more people that can come together and try to enact change on the supplier level, on the contract manufacturing level, on like the, the stuff that I love, honestly, it's like the stuff in this industry that isn't consumer facing that people don't really see, but the suppliers that are really running the show in so many ways, I think there's a bigger opportunity
0: there. Well, Consumer Packaged Goods literally has package in the name. Mm. And so what are some solutions that you're seeing are available now to startups? How can they integrate more sustainable packaging as they're just starting out, just trying to get their idea off the ground?
1: I think it's honestly really tough right now. I think you have founders. I was speaking earlier last week with um, Emily from Little Bucks. I think she had a really great blog post where she explained how sustainability has been so important to her since the DNA of this company, but the options just truly aren't there right now. And I think transparency in these conversations is super important because otherwise there's just all talk and no one's really listening or no one's really making any actual solutions or finding any solutions that work. Unfortunately, I'm not. Maybe it's up on some of the stuff that actually is out there right now, which would be beneficial. But I, I know that there's been a lot of disappointment Yeah, product integrations that haven't come out as, as people have wanted.
0: What are the main pain points for CPG? Is it that things are too expensive, too heavy? What's impractical about most of the solutions that are out there?
1: Too expensive, definitely being one. I think there is a problem right now with like the supply and demand question. There's a lot of potential demand, but there's not no one actually going in there first, proving a market. I think, you know, in business, we think, and I think a lot about when new markets have been created, right? It obviously doesn't happen overnight, but often it takes a bigger player with enough purchasing power that can kind of put themselves on the line to get the volume to where it needs to be, where it can potentially scale for someone like a Little Bucks or a Regrain. Mm-hmm. And I you know, again, I think like regrained is another perfect example of transparency working, right? They- tried to do compostable back packaging and it failed. And I think there, I did an interview at our under 30 conference in Detroit last year with Dan a panel about food waste. And he talked about this terrible experience of having to Go back on compostable packaging and something that he really didn't want to do, but it just it was ruining the product and they weren't able to ship it. But I think transparency in that conversation was huge, and having other people be able to learn from his mistakes too was huge, and it continues to be huge. Um. So
0: yeah. How can the people in our network support more innovation in compostable packaging? What's like the three things they could do?
1: Three things. Hmm. That is a good one. Well, I'd say number one, contract. You know, they they say contract your representatives. I think in this case, it's contract your contract manufacturers. Everyone has them who's in this industry, um, unless you're still making your product out of your kitchen, in which case you're a hero. Keep it up. Good job. I salute you. The contract manufacturers are the ones who have the the volume potential. They're not going to move until there's more demand from more people. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen overnight. Other thing is obviously talking... To investors, a lot of this change has to come from bigger investors. I also think not that this community can do it. A lot of the change, hopefully, will come from some of these bigger publicly traded companies, right? The same ones that you know we're talking about snake oil earlier. Sure, mm-hmm. but maybe they can use some of their other, their profits from snake oil for for good. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm being a little facetious right now. We saw even kind of again going into Expo West with some of the bigger sustainability announcements that were coming out, and we saw it with the Climate Week last September a lot of the bigger companies will have to lead the way here. Yeah. I think, honestly, one of the best things a young company can do is becoming a B Corp, honestly, as soon as possible. It's hard. It takes a fair amount of money to get the certifications involved, but I think that's also why it's better to do it as soon as possible.
0: And that might even be a way that investors can start becoming attuned to what needs to happen on the sustainability front. If they start getting all of these young entrepreneurs that are pitching and saying, hey, we need this amount of money up front so that we can become a B Corp and make sustainable business decisions from the beginning, that might start to turn the tides within uh, investments too, as they start to hear the demand for all of these innovative, creative, passionate, driven people Who are thinking about this right off the bat?
1: For sure, and I don't. I find B Corp's to be, I think, one of the most important certifications a CPG company can get. And I've seen, especially on our under thirty list. You know, when I started doing the under thirty list three years ago, we had maybe I don't know a few B Corps on the list. But we have, I think, last year we had almost half of the companies that were on the list were certified B Corps, and almost all the CPG companies we picked were even. Um, And I think they're important. I first learned about them, honestly, from a profile I did in 2018 on Matt O'Hare, the founder of Vital Farms. Not sure Mm -hmm. how many people read the S1 from the company Going Public that came out. It's the thing that I've honestly probably took most from reporting that story. Matt told me a lot about why he found it to be so important to become a certified B Corp and also a tax benefit corporation. Essentially, it has the most teeth of any of the certifications and the kind of tax classifications that you can get. And especially for benefit corporations, it can actually limit profits, valuations. And what he told me, which was the most important thing, and which was what stuck with me was you don't have to sell to the highest bidder. The company, which, especially in food industry, as we know, can happen a lot, especially to young founders. If you end up over-raising or getting in bed with the wrong investor, and you are already a B Corp and, you know, you have an issue with the way that the direction is going and you have an issue with a potential acquisition, particularly because it may not be as environmentally friendly or ethically friendly or whatever, you know, in your B Corp bylaws, things are, you know, highlighted. It's an actual mechanism that has potential teeth. Now, I don't think I've ever seen it used. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact that Matt was so specific with me and brought it up to me and really relied on it, I think really speaks volumes.
0: Yeah. Daniel, our founder, always talks about the David and Goliath metaphor. And it sounds like B Corp is, is like an extra leg up.
1: Yeah, and, and specifically with the benefit corporation stuff, and it's like your tax benefit corporation, that's particularly with the most teeth. Even with B Corpse, because there is so much reporting that's involved and like so much auditing, I think it honestly protects founders in a way that few people realize.
0: Wow, that's incredible. So it's a lot of work off the bat, but it ultimately supports you in the long run.
1: That's how it's been explained to me. Um, and I've never seen it like legally. Proven out this way, that's definitely the reason why I've felt so strongly about it, and have been so excited to see it growing as much as it has. Especially, just like again, with like the applications I'm getting for thirty under thirty, I'm just seeing it so much more.
0: That's incredible. Speaking of thirty under thirty, you're planning on launching late summer the open application. Would you like to announce or or share a little bit more about what you're excited for for this year, and recap maybe who emerged last year?
1: Yes, oh my gosh! This is honestly one of my favorite times of year. Applications just opened, and that's open for investors, for founders to recommend other founders, for you to recommend yourself. We get submissions from a lot of parents. Honestly, please don't do that, but um, I get it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, so you know, we ask for a bunch of information, um, and honestly, if anyone's listening to this who knows me personally, if you have any recommendations for this year, I would love just shoot me an email. But we're out looking all the time. I, I spend you know, I, I'm, I'm looking for candidates constantly. It's not just that we're starting officially the reporting process, but our applications are officially open. And we do get so many applications that, that you know, honestly, we probably maybe wouldn't have known of before. So what we're looking for and what I'm looking for mostly, and you know, I talked about B Corps already, but we look really significantly at, the market? Sure. The product? Sure. Does it taste good? Yes. We do a tasting. Usually it involves um, a celebrity chef. Last year was Christina Tosi um, and an alumni. Last year was uh, Bonza co-founder Brian Rudolph. In the years past, it's been Nick Jammett from Sweet Cream. We've had Padma Lakshmi. We sit down for a tasting and it has to taste good. But really what, what the most thing I'm looking for is I want people who are on this list to be real business minds. I am looking for bootstrapping um, above all else. Honestly, I understand this industry has a lot of amazing investors and I speak to a lot of them. And there's been a lot of money going to young people, which has been great for a lot of cases um, and a lot of success stories from, you know, the super coffee brothers who have been on the list in the past to even, you know, Dan Rock, who I talked about earlier, someone who was on the list last year, Trinity, Muzan Woofford from Gold and her fiance Issei Kaburi, so many different people. But what struck me about Gold, for example, I think that's actually the perfect example to talk about. This couple had been really thoughtful about how they were financing. You know, they had had options for a lot of money being thrown their way, and. They wanted to own this business and they wanted it to be theirs um, and they bootstrapped it and kept it really lean. You know, they were working with a lot of consultants, but it was pretty much all, only them. And they were, had seen amazing success. Trinity had become the first um, black woman to launch a brand under 30 at Sephora, which is a huge accomplishment, but I think she wouldn't have gotten there if she wasn't as thoughtful and specific about running her business. And I think people don't realize that we we look for bootstrapping as much as we do. We also, for the record, we look at everything from who your parents are and what they were doing to how much student debt you had. And, you know, we're not using the student debt indicator that's on the application to try to, you know, say, if you're, you're going to have a risk in this business, we're looking at this because we want to know if you're putting yourself on the line and that you also, if you also have debt, I mean, that's important. And I also think for someone who has raised, if they have student debt, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I respect it a bit more, to be honest. We look really seriously at people whose parents started funding. We, we get very specific about how these actual funds first got into their hands, as I think um, shows as the list has um, evolved. We're actually in our 10th year this year, which is crazy. I think just those characteristics have been what we've continued to highlight and push for more and more with each list.
0: Sure. Trinity's story really stood out to you. What were some other interesting funding models that you've seen through the Forbes 30 under
1: 30? I mean, we've definitely seen it all. I've seen everything from, you know, a completely bootstrapped company. Um, Lauren assessed last year from Fresh and Lean, 28 at the time, and had started this um, meal delivery, a microwavable service out of her dorm room, dropped out. And now runs her own plant in Anaheim. And as we know from the contract manufacturing conversation, the fact that she has her own plant is actually really rare and super impressive. Um, and, and that was just completely funded from the cash flow. That business had amazing cash flow. Um, but wow, you know, I think you also don't see that every day, right? And so many of these businesses don't have a major cash flow and have a lot of investment costs we've seen the crowdfunding here and there. Although, I mean, to get on this list too, you you do have to have usually a significant amount of either sales or kind of volume. We're trying to look for early successes, but successes nonetheless. So, I mean, we've made bets over the years on companies that haven't had more than at least a million in sales, but typically a company will have at least a million somewhere on their balance sheet on the list. But again, we do look at every company and and over the years, we've advocated for founders that we believe in who maybe you know are only in a few hundred thousand in sales. The product stands out and it's really important and it's a risk. So yeah. Got it. I'm honestly just a really, I'm a sucker for bootstrapping still. I mean, it's probably from so much of my time spent on the billionaires list. When I first started out at Forbes, so many people at Forbes start out on the billionaires team and it just really kind of instills in your head that you know, you only get to be on the billionaires list by probably hoarding your equity and and protecting yourself above all costs. And I honestly just wish a lot of our young entrepreneurs thought about that more. Not because I think being a billionaire is the be all end all because I don't, but I do worry that because there are so many young success stories that um, there are some young founders that are maybe taken advantage of or, you know, not understanding what they're really doing when they're raising as big as a, of an amount as they are.
0: Sure. Do you have a favorite CPG product?
1: Oh my God, I've got so many. My pantry is insane, honestly. It's like such a big part of the main room of my tiny New York City apartment. I'm a really big condiments person. So I love Fly By Jing, Szechuan Chili Crisp. I've been really into making, I haven't been able to really honestly find ice cream that much. And I haven't been going to Really out to supermarkets, but um, when I have ice cream, I've been like obsessed with eating the Hella um, Bubble Goods Better for You Nutella with Little Bucks on top. It's really freaking delicious. Wow! Um, specific.
0: specific. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of really weird ferments, and, and I've been gardening and growing mushrooms. So I'm not like totally going out and buying a lot of stuff, but like definitely condiments. I also have been really big fan of Burlap and Barrel spices for a really long time, um, and they're Garlic powder is like on every single thing I make. (laughs) I just want to add that I can't believe I didn't say this to begin with. I'm a hilariously embarrassing brand evangelist for Bonza rice, Brian. I'm 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 open with him about the pastas are good, but the rice is so exceptional. I have been gluten free (laughs) on and off throughout my life, and I'm supposed to be full time. I just can't because I'm obsessed with pasta, but His Bonza Rice, I think it is a game changer of a product. You can do anything with it, and it actually has the chew of a real pasta. It makes like a perfect risotto. You can do anything with it. It's so easy. It's so healthy. I am truly obsessed, and if anyone listening to this is gluten-free and knows me, you know we've definitely talked about Bonza Rice.
0: (laughs) Did you know that on Bonza's website, you can apply to be a real ambassador?
1: (laughs) Brian knows I call him pasta Brian and I see him I can't not call him by his Instagram handle I'm like pasta Brian what is the price?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible <laughs> so that's like one of your favorite pantry oh stores. yeah
1: I have, I have like a thrive market every eight weeks like
0: this might be a silly question, but isn't rice already gluten free?
1: Oh yeah, totally. So this is like chickpeas, right? So it's in that. It was in this like hilarious time when Rite rice was launching too, and white right rice is still around. But um, bonza honestly, sure. I think the better product. It's phenomenal. It just tastes like an orzo, honestly, and a gluten free orzo that tastes like a real orzo is honestly pretty impressive. But yeah, I have a thrive like auto ship. I get like thirteen bags of it like every eight weeks. It's pretty embarrassing. <laughs>
0: That's incredible. I, until this moment, had no idea that orzo means barley in Italian and is not gluten-free.
1: Oh, girl, I could talk to you about pasta shapes for days, I get. Okay, so you know the brand Cifaglini? Well, you probably don't because you may not be a pasta person like I am. A startup, it's somewhat small. It's vertically integrated, which I find really cool. Started by two guys. They use a lot of heirloom wheat and heirloom grains from around the U.S., and they um, make all the pasta up in upstate New York at their own plant. You can see where I'm going. I really like vertically integrated companies. <laughs> but cool. I had a really embarrassing moment with them once because I was at a dinner for them. And they were, you know, it was they were unveiling some like summer sauces or some new shapes or what have you. And they had one of my absolute favorite pastas of all time. It was this emmer wheat. Reginetti and it had these perfect, like lasagna, like edges. It folded over, it was chewy, it was whole grain, it held sauce really, really, really well. I'm at this dinner, I was going on about how I love this pasta so much, and they bring it out, and the chef comes over and he knows that I've been talking about it. So he comes over, and I took a bite. And I was like, oh, honey, you changed it, didn't you? (laughs) And his face fell so much. And turns out, back to packaging, they had to change the pasta and make it smaller, because the packaging they were using was just like too big. And so when they launched into Whole Foods, it wasn't going to fit on the shelf. Oh, no. I mean, it's still pretty good. I get it sometimes. But it's not the same. And I'm probably one of the only people who would know that it's not the same because I'm that weirdly obsessive about pasta. Um, and I totally broke his heart that
0: night. He was really upset. I can relate. Sometimes I'm that way about ice cream. I'm, I could tell if someone changed the formula. <laughs> I love that. And that's that's a really tricky thing for, for businesses as they scale, especially with places like Whole Foods. I remember mm-hmm. working at an ice cream company and them going through all of these different product changes to align with what's able to be sold in Whole Foods. They're a huge um, – I don't mean to use the word dictator in like a dictator mm-hmm. way, but they do dictate a lot of the – the ways that that cpg companies evolve they do and i think
1: that gets back to honestly my broader point when you had asked like what the community can do it's not really what these founders can do i mean yes they can advocate and they can push for change but the founders because of the way this industry works and the contract manufacturing and how much retailers have a say like founders are often really beholden to the system and it takes these bigger cpg players and the retailers to be making a lot of this change
0: it it just opens the door for more innovation in online retailers and different ways of distributing. For
1: sure. As, especially as D2C se- seems to me anyway to be more valuable than ever. At the very least, having your own D2C platform on other retail as part of your plan.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. We I had a loaded conversation. <laughs>
1: Rant about pasta anymore? I mean, like, I'm down to my last two boxes from Italy that I'm getting of my favorite shape.
0: Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, if anyone makes pasta and they've got a really cool gluten-free pasta that they want Chloe to to try, definitely reach out. <laughs> I'm I'm here for all the pastas, and I've unfortunately been
1: on every sad gastrointestinal diet that you could ever think of.
0: Yeah. This um, I think the CPG space has a lot of people who have experimented with different diets and trends trying to best understand their own body and how they can support others yeah
1: it's such a journey um, for all of us but we'll see um um, but i really do think there's a role for cpg in the better food movement and it's just a fascinating time to be building a brand and especially one around Sustainable goals. Um, it's never been more important.
0: Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> if you like what you heard and you're interested in learning more, sign up for our newsletter at startupcpg.com. Our newsletter lists all of our events. You can get involved by joining a Zoom happy hour. And we also share industry insights from the Startup CPG community. So you can learn more at startupcpg.com. We definitely want to have you involved. We have an active online community and these networking events are really fun. So perhaps you're even our next podcast guest.